Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eitzmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, as usual, there's a lot to talk about, all of it pertaining to the Constitution. Shall we start with, uh, with whatever the latest developments are regarding the uh, presidential election? There haven't been too many developments since the last time we had this program. As we remember at that time, what looked like might be our best shot was the fact that the state of Texas had filed a lawsuit against Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Georgia. And anyway, in, in that lawsuit, they were saying that the executives in those states had usurped the power of the legislature to set election rules that the Constitution, Article 2, says that the legislators will choose the manner in which the electors or the electoral college are chosen. That's a power delegated to the legislature, and the legislature would not have the power to redelegate that to another branch of government. And even worse than that, the other branch of government, the executive branch, through the election board, the secretary of state, and other officials in those states usurped the power of the legislature by setting up advanced systems of voting and by providing that absentee ballots didn't need to be authenticated in the way the state legislatures in those states provided and so on. Anyway, so Texas filed that lawsuit, and they were joined in the lawsuit by the attorney generals of 26 other states, I'm sorry, 16 other states and then a couple separate lawsuits with a couple of other attorneys general, 126 congressmen filed an amicus brief in support of Texas in this case, far more important than any of those. A couple of the attorneys here and I filed a lawsuit. That's far more important than the 126 congressmen, of course. But no, obviously not. But at any rate, we'd like to think we had something to say that the court should have considered. But the court declined to consider Texas's case. And the reason they refused to consider the case, they said, with Justice Thomas and Justice Alito dissenting, they said that Texas had not shown sufficient standing, that is, sufficient stake in the outcome. That is, Texas had not shown that Texas was affected by the way elections were conducted in those four other states. Well, we have suggested that what Texas ought to do would be refile that lawsuit, and if they refile it, they could show where they do have standing, particularly, I would suggest they allege that with the promises that Biden has made, promises that if carried out would certainly have a detrimental effect on Texas, for example, opening up immigration, which in a border state like Texas, that could unleash thousands upon thousands, possibly millions of illegal immigrants into Texas, that he would end fracking in the oil industry, and as big as the oil industry is in Texas, that would have a terrible effect on Texas's economy. In other words, if Texas were to refile and show specific harm, they might possibly get their case reconsidered. However, President Trump's campaign has filed a a petition for what we call a writ of certiorari with the Supreme Court. That is a request that the uh, 
Supreme Court to take up an appeal in one of the cases they brought against the state of Texas. And today, we in here at the foundation are going to be drafting a amicus brief or friend of the court brief in support of the Trump campaign on that. And I can only say that the electors have met. They met on Monday, the 14th of December. And of course, as we saw, they don't all get together in some big facility in Washington, D.C. and convene as the electoral college. Rather, they convene in each state. And so in each state they convened, they cast their electoral votes, and some think that means it is set in concrete and the game is over. Not necessarily. Those votes can be uncertified, and in fact, in the state of Arizona, the citizens have gathered in front of the Capitol and they have nominated another slate of electors, and it is within the power of Congress to decide to accept the other slate rather than the state that the slate that the governor has certified. And I believe similar things have gone on in several of the other contested states as well. Now, here's what happens when the Electoral College meets. I'm, I'm sorry, the Electoral College has met in the sense that they meet in each of the 50 states. But here's what happens on January 6th when their votes are counted. This will be the new Congress because the new Congress takes office January 3rd, the president, of course, January 20th. But on January 6th, they will have a joint session of Congress. And at that joint session, the vice president will open the sealed ballots and have them counted. And their officials there are designated to do the counting. And state by state, the electoral votes of the states will be announced. Now, when they are announced, if any congressman wants to raise an objection to the way those votes were cast and say they were miscounted or the wrong slate of electors was seated, then the Congress will break up into House and Senate. Each House will have a separate hearing, a hearing that is to be two hours, no more, and in the course of that hearing, there will be debate on the challenge. No congressman and no senator is allowed to speak for longer than five minutes. And then each of the houses will vote on whether to accept the challenge or reject the challenge. Now, part of this is set out in a statute that was adopted in the 1800s. But one thing that is unclear in a challenge like this is if they break up like this to vote, when the House votes, do they vote by states or do they vote as individual congressmen? If they vote as individual congressmen, then out of the 435 congressmen, there is there are, let's see, it's a, a very slight majority of Democrats. And anyway, so it'd be difficult for Republicans to win a vote in the House, although depending on what happens in Georgia, they could win a, house, a vote in the Senate, probably would, because whatever the result in Georgia, the Georgia election is January 5th, and most likely it will not be certified or the votes will not finally be counted and a winner declared by January 6th. So that would mean that Republicans have a 50 to 48 majority. And 
Anyway, so the Senate could vote one way. If the House votes different from the Senate, then it's unclear from the rules what happens in that case. But at any rate, that could still happen. One congressman, Congressman Mo Brooks of Alabama, has said that he is going to challenge the results. And so that, and that's all they need is one. And these challenges could be state by state. In other words, out of 50 states, they could challenge the results of all 50 states. And each one of them would take them a, a two-hour session to deliberate. There has to be a senator join in the challenge as well. So far, no senator has said positively that he will join the challenge, but there are several that looks like there is a good possibility they will. Anyway, so those are things yet to happen. The court could still get involved. There are several state lawsuits still going on in several of the contested states. As I say, Congress itself could take some action. So nothing is decided for sure yet. And until the electoral votes are finally announced on January 6th, officially under the Constitution, CNN to the contrary, we do not have a president-elect or a vice president-elect. Anyway, so that's the situation as it is right now. And anyway, we're going to get back into the meat of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, one of the most important sections of the Constitution, that which sets forth the powers that we, the people, through the Constitution, have delegated to Congress. And we're going to get back into that right after the break. Okay, let me ask one really quick question, Colonel. Is uh, do, do you think what, what's going through these congressmen's minds, are they weighing the possibility of unrest or doing the correct thing procedurally? Um, which which should be their, their uh, rule of thumb by which they should cast their votes in terms of certifying the electoral votes? Well, ideally, they'll be deciding what, based on what is right. And yes, unrest is certainly a possibility if they were to disrupt this and announce that President Trump has received a majority of the electors. There would undoubtedly be a great deal of unrest, but there is also a great deal of discontent with the many who feel that the Biden forces have stolen this election. And so there's going to be unrest regardless of the results. So I would say they should simply do the right thing. have an idea for an invention or new product? Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Then call InventHelp now. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential and explains every step of the invention process. We create professional materials representing your idea and submit it to companies who are looking for new ideas. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We also offer services including 3D modeling and animation demonstrating your idea, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to show InventHelp client ideas to additional companies. Join the thousands of people just like you who chose InventHelp to pursue their idea. We are experienced. We are working for you. We are InventHelp. Call us for free information at 1-800-460-1663. That's 1-800-460-1663. Again, 1-800-460-1663. 
If you've fallen behind in your credit card payments during the shutdown, you're probably feeling some added pressures. And even a brief history of late payments can lead to a big drop in your credit score. But you don't have to solve these problems alone. Trinity Debt Management can help. We'll work with your creditors, put a stop to late fees and other penalties, and make a plan that helps you get caught up. We'll also consolidate your bills into one easy-to-manage monthly payment and negotiate much lower interest rates. Not only will Will you find immediate relief? You'll save thousands. And don't worry, it's not a loan. It's a smart way to get back on track. All you have to do is give Trinity a quick call and we'll take care of the rest. Right now, no one really knows what the future will bring. But one thing is for sure. If your debt has you down, we should talk. Here's the number. Call 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. As life gets back to normal and we start heading back to work, don't leave your leftover stash of toilet paper exposed to rodents. Send them packing the most humane way with Plug-In Pest-Free. G'day, I'm Scott from Plug-In Pest-Free, the electromagnetic device that utilises the active wiring in your home or business to keep rodents and pests away. 100% chemical-free and environmentally friendly. Just plug it in. It's that simple. My strongest performer, the Pro Unit, is good for most homes and small businesses up to 4,000 square feet. Now that's fair income. Is your home or business protected? If not, order yours today at gopestfree.com. Use promo code SAVE20 for 20% off. That's gopestfree.com, promo code SAVE20. gopestfree.com, promo code SAVE20. Don't spray and regret. Plug in. And forget. Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, we are back in section or Article One, Section Eight. I believe we left off last week talking about the Commerce Clause, which it turns out has been kind of a source of mischief, at least for some within the federal government. It certainly has been a source of mischief and a Broad interpretation, perhaps a misinterpretation, has been one of the reasons that we've allowed the federal government to grow so much and regulate so much. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution gives Congress the power to do certain things, but only the things that we, the people, have delegated to it the power to do. And one of those portions, as we saw before, was the Necessary and Proper Clause, by which Congress can not only do these things that are enumerated, but can also do whatever is necessary and proper to carry out those powers. Some seem to think this is a catch-all, by which if Congress doesn't have the power under any other section, well, we'll just turn to the necessary and proper clause and use that. But it's not really intended that way. It has to be whatever is necessary and proper in order to carry out the foregoing powers. As we saw before, one example of that would be to established post offices, well, that's a specifically delegated power to establish post offices, but doesn't say anything about the power to print stamps or hire mail carriers or mail bags or mail trucks and so on. But we would agree those things are necessary for the operation of a postal system, so that would be under the necessary and proper clause. But the necessary and proper clause has to relate one of the other foregoing powers necessary to carry out one of those powers. 
we can't just say that that gives them the power to do anything they want. Interestingly enough, the court has adjudicated at great length concerning what the necessary phrase of that necessary and proper clause mean. It has to be necessary to carry out the foregoing powers, but as Marshall says in the McCulloch versus Maryland case, necessary doesn't mean absolutely indispensable. It means convenient or expedient. The court hasn't really given much consideration to what is meant by proper. And the power that the court is going to exercise under that section, or Congress will exercise under that section, has to be both necessary and proper. Perhaps the best way to understand proper would be consistent with our normal theories of government and consistent or at least not inconsistent with other provisions of the Constitution. Anyway, so understanding the necessary and proper clause, we come back to regulating commerce. And Congress has the power then to regulate certain types of commerce. And as I said, the commerce that they can regulate, I categorize as the three ends. They can regulate foreign commerce, that is international commerce. They can regulate commerce among the several states, that is interstate commerce. And they can regulate commerce with the Indian tribes, that is Indian commerce. So international, interstate, Indian. What they are not given the authority to do is to regulate intra-state commerce, that is commerce within a state, such as if you are carrying out a shipment from, let's say, Cedar City to Salt Lake City, that's interstate. But if you're going from Salt Lake City down to Phoenix, that is interstate. They can regulate the latter, but not the former. But as we saw in the power of Congress to regulate interstate commerce, the courts have said that that can include the regulation of intrastate commerce if that is necessary to effectuate a comprehensive scheme of regulating interstate commerce. For example, let's say if you had a railroad, in fact, this was a case from the early 1900s of a railroad that, let's say, it runs from Shreveport, Louisiana, through Texas, all the way to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And going from Shreveport to Dallas would be interstate. From Dallas to Abilene would be intrastate. From Abilene on to Albuquerque would be interstate again. Well, the court looked at a railroad system where this railroad was having tickets at state rates within Texas if you were just traveling within Texas, but following interstate rates if you were traveling on a railroad interstate. And so what this meant was you'd have to buy an interstate ticket from Shreveport to Dallas, then an intrastate rate ticket from Dallas to Abilene, and then an interstate rate again from Abilene to Albuquerque. And so the court said that is going to be confusing. And so in order to have a comprehensive system of regulation of the interstate commerce from Shreveport to Albuquerque, if it is necessary to regulate the rates within Texas as well, Congress can regulate those rates. And we've seen how gradually this has grown with the Jones and Laughlin Steel case and the U.S. versus Darby case, the Wickard versus Filburn case, to say that Congress can regulate anything 
intrastate commerce or even local production, if is that kind of production or that kind of intrastate commerce has a substantial effect on interstate commerce. We saw last week Wickard versus Filburn where Congress had set quotas of how much wheat a farmer could raise on his own land, and Farmer Filburn in Ohio raised excess wheat, but he fed it to his own pigs on his own farm and said, how can you possibly say that the wheat that I grow on my own farm and feed to my own pigs is interstate commerce? And the court said, well, it's very simple. You see, if you had not raised that excess wheat, then you would have had to buy feed for your pigs there at the elevator, and that would have affected interstate commerce. Or if you had raised that excess wheat and sold it rather than rather than buying it on the market or feeding it from your, your field, then that would also affect interstate commerce. So you have affected interstate commerce even though you didn't engage in interstate commerce at all. So anything that has a substantial effect on interstate commerce is fair game for regulation. Now, as we move into the 1980s and the 1990s, and we see the court becoming more conservative now. First of all, Chief Justice Berger is not really a solid conservative justice, but more so than Chief Justice Warren, who preceded him. And then Chief Justice Rehnquist, more conservative than Justice Warren, or Justice Berger even. And so as the court has become more conservative, it has started to to retreat from that doctrine a little bit and move more toward a recognition of that interstate commerce is not just carte blanche anything. And so we have the Lopez case, case involving a state law that prohibited the possession of a firearm within, I believe it's 500 feet of a school building, and Lopez is charged with violating that law, and Congress, or the court, tries to justify this law based on interstate commerce, saying the gun was probably sold in interstate commerce. Well, the court simply said that is so far removed from his possession of the gun there by the school that we can't say that has a substantial effect on interstate commerce, and so they ruled that that is an unconstitutional law. The state could probably pass a law like that, but the federal government could not. And Justice Thomas said, well, we are getting to the point where everything affects everything. And so this whole doctrine of a substantial effect needs to be reconsidered, and hopefully it will be in the near future with a more conservative court. Sounds like they've got their hands full in terms of, of how how they weigh that balance. Look, for people who want to exercise greater power, it sounds like that's pretty much a blank check. I just hope there's still enough, you know, originalists on the court that they'd say, look, we, we're, we're really not interested in, in opening this up to just broad, you know, anything goes kind of interpretation. Exactly. Okay. Hopefully we'll, the pendulum is moving the other direction, though. Fingers crossed, yes. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back on Constitution Classroom right after this. back. This is Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We are talking about 
Article 1, Section 8, specifically the Commerce Clause, and Colonel, it turns out as you're unpacking this, there is a lot to the Commerce Clause. There certainly is, and we've previously seen that the Interstate Commerce Clause really had two purposes. One was to enable Congress to regulate interstate commerce, but the other purpose was to free up interstate commerce from various oppressive state regulations because at the time the Constitution was adopted, many of these states who just very recently had been English colonies were treating each other almost like foreign nations as far as commerce was concerned, regulating each other, prohibiting peddlers from coming in from other states, making them pay heavy tariffs and so on. And so part of the purpose was to free up commerce from oppressive state regulation. But they didn't prohibit the states from regulating interstate commerce at all. So we might say that the power to regulate interstate commerce is a concurrent power. Now, when we say it's a concurrent power, what we mean is that the federal government has that power because we have delegated it to the federal government, but the states have still reserved to themselves some power to regulate interstate commerce as well. And so within that area of concurrent power where both the federal government and the state can regulate, we have to consider what the state can regulate here. And the first question to consider is, has the federal government preempted the field with its regulation? If it has, then the state cannot regulate in this area at all. For example, on a matter, let's say, transportation of hazardous waste from one state to another. Well, the courts have kind of come to the conclusion that hazardous waste is almost by definition a national problem. And so we're going to say Congress has preempted the field and that the states will not be allowed to regulate there at all. In other things like, let's say, emissions from cars and so on, where we have EPA regulations and so on that restrict how much fumes and so on, cars or factories and so on can, can emit. Well, can the states impose regulations as well? There we looked whether Congress has intended to preempt this field or whether they have left power to the states as well. And commonly we'll look to the statute. Let's say, for example, that you have a federal statute dealing with, let's say, vehicle emissions. And the statute may well say something to the effect that nothing in the statute shall prohibit the states from enacting the same or stricter regulations. And if they have said, we're allowing the states to regulate as well, that's pretty well going to settle the matter, and that'll be then subject to state regulation as well as federal. Sometimes we just have to look to the nature of the subject matter to decide whether the federal government has or should have preempted this or not. But anyway, so let's just now look to those areas where Congress has not preempted the field and where it is left to the states, and the states can regulate as well. Now we have two questions to consider. And I'm, I know this is going to get a little complicated, but I'm going to try to explain it. And after having explained it to classes of law students, I don't know for how many years, that hopefully I'll be able to explain it in a way we can understand. But as far as the state's authority to regulate, 
interstate commerce in these areas. The first question is, does the state's regulation discriminate against interstate commerce? And let's say we have a case, well, I'm gonna give you a couple of cases. The Bib versus National, National Freight. And in Bib versus National Freight, we had a case in, involving the state of Illinois that imposed a regulation upon truck drivers, that truck, trucks going through Illinois, trucks in Illinois generally, had to have a contour-shaped mudflap. And anyway, other states all required a rectangular-shaped mudflap. But Illinois had this unique requirement. So this imposes a burden on interstate commerce. Truck drivers, as let's say they're traveling from Indiana through Illinois to Iowa, they've got to stop at the border and take off those mud flaps and put on these Illinois contour mud flaps. And then when they get through Illinois, then they have to take those off again and put on the others. This is expensive. It's time consuming. It's inconvenient. And anyway, so there is an objection. This is an unreasonable regulation of interstate commerce. Here is the question that the court then looks at. Here's the way they'll phrase it. Does the burden this imposes on interstate commerce outweigh the benefit to the state from this regulation? In this case, it might surprise you as a result, but the court ruled that the burden on interstate commerce outweighed the benefit. The court said, here is the burden on interstate commerce, all the restrictions, how much time it took for truck drivers, the extra expense of the mud flaps and so on. And in fact, even noting that sometimes truck drivers were even opting to go south through Kentucky instead of through Illinois just to avoid having to do that. And so the burden on interstate commerce is pretty substantial. Now, what is the benefit to the state? Well, the court said that the benefit to the state is so minimal as to be almost irrational. In other words, there were some claims that maybe a contour mud flap was less likely to splash mud on a windshield of a car, but there were other experts who disputed that. So the court said in this case, the burden on interstate commerce outweighs the benefit to the state. And so they ruled in favor of the truck drivers saying that this is unconstitutional. It's an unconstitutional state interference with interstate commerce. A few years later, we have the consolidated freight lines case. And this involved a regulation in Iowa concerning the length of trucks, but also concerning a prohibition on doubles. That is a truck cab pulling two trailers. And here, Iowa was able to demonstrate a stronger state interest. For example, they said that doubles trucks are more likely to jackknife on icy roads, if you get plenty of in Iowa. And not only that, but they take longer to go through intersections and causing vehicle drivers at the intersection to rather than wait for this truck to get through to jump the gun and go in ahead of them and so on. And so they were able to show some benefits. But on the other hand, the burden on interstate commerce was very substantial because, after all, it isn't just like putting on a different mud flap. You can't suddenly take a 
blowtorch and saw six feet off the back of your truck. And so, again, and this was a, I believe it was a 5-4 decision. The court ruled in this case that the burden on interstate commerce outweighed the benefit to the state and the regulation was unconstitutional. Had I been on the court, I probably would have sided with the dissenters in that case. I would probably have said that the state had the authority in this area. Well, then we get to the next question. What if the regulation does interfere with interstate commerce or discriminate on its face against interstate commerce? Now, as we've seen, in these cases, the these regulations don't discriminate on their face against interstate commerce. Trucks in the state of Iowa, trucks in the state of Illinois have to meet this mud flap requirement or this truck length requirement, just like those out of state. But what if a regulation, like for example, there was one in Maine, and Taylor versus Maine was an interesting case. It involved bait fish. And I don't think we're gonna get time to consider this case before the break. So comment do you have any comment on this, Brian? Any thoughts that you see as we're going through this? I am just starting to appreciate that uh, maybe it's not so easy to be a Supreme Court justice after all. No, and again, we can go back to the question here regarding the elections. You can certainly see why the court is reluctant to intervene. The Democrats have been threatening that they're going to pack the court, which if they can get Congress to do it, it's constitutional. It's not a good idea, but it's constitutional. They've even threatening to limit the terms of Supreme Court justices, which is patently unconstitutional without an amendment. But I think they're genuinely concerned that there will be efforts to retaliate against the court if the court gets involved. And so that's part of the reason they may be reluctant to do so. Well, and it's clear that there's there's no shortage of people within government. I'm not looking at the, the court specifically, but um, it seems like there are some people within government that maybe they feel like it's it's their job to take things that are simple and complicate them. I don't know if there's job security in that or not. Let's face it, lawyers get paid for making things complicated. Okay, fair enough. We will take a very quick break. This is Constitution Classroom. We'll be back with Colonel John Eitzmo right after this. why Relief Factor is so successful in lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question. Pete and Seth Talbot, the father and son founders of Relief Factor, tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, 100% drug-free ingredients that each help your body deal with inflammation. Order the three-week quick start now. Discount it to only $19.95 to see if it will work for you too. Call 800-500-8384. ReliefFactor.com. I'm Dr. Baker, an ER physician. If you're having leg pain, swelling, or redness, but haven't talked to your doctor yet, don't wait. This could be deep vein thrombosis, a blood clot which could travel to your lungs and lead to a pulmonary embolism, which could cause chest pain or discomfort or difficulty breathing and be deadly. Your symptoms could mean something serious, so don't wait. Talk to a doctor right away by phone, online, or in person. Brought to you by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer. 
Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. Stock market have you nervous with all the massive fluctuations? With the hope for a COVID vaccine on the rise, shifting political landscape, and the election at an end, it's virtually impossible to guess what will happen next. With Vantage Point, you don't have to. Text MONEY to 411411 to find out how our technology can forecast market trends up to three days in advance with incredible accuracy. Text MONEY to 411411 to get what you need to stay ahead of market trends and find explosive moves before they happen. Vantage Point's patented technology analyzes huge quantities of global data in seconds. Stop guessing. Start predicting trends 72 hours in advance. Text MONEY to 411411 and experience Vantage Point for free. Text MONEY to 411411 so you can protect and grow your capital now. Don't wait. Text MONEY to 411411. Go to vantagepointsoftware.com for terms, conditions, and privacy policy. Thinking about life insurance? What if you could make one free phone call and learn your best price from nearly a dozen highly rated price competitive companies? Well, that's exactly what happens when you call SelectQuote Life. For example, George is 40. He was getting sky-high quotes from other companies because he takes meds to control his blood pressure. But when I shopped around, I found him a 10-year, $500,000 policy for under $25 a month. I'm SelectQuote agent Dan Savino. And believe me, if SelectQuote isn't shopping for your life insurance, you're probably paying too much. For a free quote, call 800-523-3771. That's 800-523-3771. 800-523-3771. Or go to selectquote.com. Since 1985, we shop, you save. Get full details on the example policy at selectquote.com slash commercials. Your price could vary depending on your health, issuing company, and other factors. Not available in all states. Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Well, Colonel, you've been explaining some of the various uh, ways and cases in which uh, the, the Commerce Clause is tested, stretched, and, and shaped. And it sounds like uh, it, it still is probably in somewhat of a state of flux. Well, the Constitution is in a state of flux in the sense that it is being interpreted. And I would say that the principles of the Constitution are principles of the ages. They are unchanging principles. But as we unfold them, as we see how they apply to new situations, sometimes we see new developments. We see it being interpreted in ways we haven't thought of. Sometimes we see it being interpreted in ways that violate what the framers intended entirely. And I have to say, in this whole area of interstate commerce, the court has gone beyond what the framers expected. They never thought that Congress could get as intricately involved in matters of local production and local commerce as they have done so. But again, the Necessary and Proper Clause has enabled them to do that, and in retrospect, Maybe that necessary and proper clause should have been drafted more narrowly. But at any rate, we've been seeing the ways that states can regulate interstate commerce. We have seen that if the regulation does not, on its face, discriminate against interstate commerce, then we simply weigh the benefit to the state against the burden on interstate commerce. That's a balancing test upon which reasonable judges could disagree. But let's suppose that it does discriminate on its face against interstate commerce. 
several decades ago, the state of Maine was having a problem. You know, Maine has a large commercial fishing industry. They use bait fish, and there was contamination. There was a disease spreading among the bait fish, and so the supply of bait fish was becoming contaminated. And so the state of Maine decided to have a total prohibition on all importation of bait fish. We'll use only local bait fish, no bait fish from Massachusetts or New Hampshire or Vermont can be imported into Maine. Anyway, so does this discriminate against interstate commerce? Well, clearly it does. No question it discriminates against interstate commerce. You're saying local bait fish, you can use them. Those from out of state can't use them at all. Total prohibition. That is as clear discrimination against interstate commerce as there could possibly be. But the court says we will justify discrimination against interstate commerce if the state can show that it has a compelling interest in doing so, and that compelling interest cannot be achieved by any less restrictive means. And there's a pretty strong presumption against any state regulation of interstate commerce that discriminates discriminates against out-of-state commerce. But in this case, the court said Maine has a very serious problem with the bait fish supply, which is serious because Maine depends extensively on its commercial fishing, and that interest is a compelling interest, and we have to agree with Maine that there is no way they can safeguard their bait fish supply from this disease by anything short of a total prohibition on importation of bait fish from out of state. And so you do have a compelling interest. It can't be achieved by less restrictive means. So in this case, Maine's regulation was upheld. And that hasn't happened very often. The state has a high burden to meet when they're trying to do that, but here you can see where they did. Well, we've looked at the Interstate Commerce Clause. We can see where it gives Congress the authority to regulate Congress, commerce between states, and that that can include regulating intrastate commerce and intrastate production when necessary. We've seen that this does not exclude the power of the states to regulate interstate commerce and the restrictions on what states can regulate. We sometimes call that the dormant Commerce Clause. If you had said that to James Madison, he would have wondered what you were talking about, but that's the way the courts have started to refer to it, probably more law professors than courts. But that is the Commerce Clause. And in the time that remains, let's look at the principle of a uniform rule of naturalization. And obviously, naturalization is not a subject that can be left up to each individual state. You can't immigrate into New York and become a citizen of New York, but not a citizen of the United States. And so there is a need that this be uniform. And so Congress can impose laws on the importation or on uh, importation of people, I guess you could say, but on immigration and naturalization. Now, in the 14th Amendment, we read, and of course the 14th Amendment was not in effect when Article 8 of the Constitution was, or Article 
1, Section 8 of the Constitution was written, but in the 14th Amendment, we read that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. And this makes it clear that federal citizenship and state citizenship are going to be considered one and the same, but that you're going to be a citizen if you were born in this country and if you're subject to the jurisdiction of this country or if you were naturalized in this country. Now, a lawsuit has been filed in California. I'm told that one may be filed in Texas as well and possibly in a couple of other states in the federal courts there challenging whether Kamala Harris is eligible to be vice president of the United States. And anyway, some are outraged that people would even suggest this, just as they were when people questioned the citizenship of Obama based upon whether he was born in the United States or not. I will simply say that all President Obama had to do to end the controversy was produce the birth certificates, and that could have ended it. Instead, he let the thing drag out a great deal. He did produce the birth certificates. Some have questioned its authenticity, but I think the burden is going to be on them to prove otherwise, and that's probably something of history that maybe we'll never know the final truth of. But at any rate, what about Kamala Harris? No question, unlike the issue with Obama, no question Kamala Harris was born in the United States. But she was born in the United States to parents who were not U.S. citizens. Now, there are some who are trying to say that what this simply means is that anybody who is born in the United States is automatically a citizen. But that's not what it says. It goes on to say, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Now, if they just meant anybody born here is automatically a citizen, then that phrase, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, would be redundant. And we presume that every word in the Constitution is there for a reason. In other words, a presumption against redundancy. James Madison once said of the Constitution, every word of it determines a question of power and liberty. Well, here is the situation with Kamala Harris. Her father was from Jamaica. He was a citizen of Jamaica. He had come to the United States to study on a student visa. Her mother was from India, and she was a citizen of India. She had come to the United States, again, on a student visa. Now, unlike the father, the mother eventually applied for and received U.S. citizenship, but she was not a U.S. citizen at the time that Kamala Harris was born. And so she is born here, but her She's not, was she subject to the jurisdiction of the United States? Well, that's the question as to what that phrase subject to the jurisdiction means. And obviously, she's subject to certain laws. Any person who is traveling in the United States, with the possible exception of those with diplomatic immunity, is going to be subject to prosecution for violation of criminal laws, but they're not subject to tax laws and other laws like that. So these cases. I wouldn't be optimistic they'd be successful, but they may help to explain further what that phrase subject to this jurisdiction thereof actually means. So with that, we'll move on next week into exploring further into Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. And with that, I'll wish everyone a Merry Christmas.
And a Merry Christmas to you as well, Colonel. Uh, thank you for everything that you have done throughout this year and, and uh, you know, to, to, to further open our minds to what is in the Constitution. Obviously, it's a lot more than a lot of people might think at first glance, and I appreciate you taking the time with us each week to, uh, to give us an explanation and help us uh, come to a better understanding. And thank you for giving me the opportunity. 